My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God. And I'm so glad that you're joining me, whether that be on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, podcast, wherever. Thank you for joining me as we continue our journey through the Word of God. And I encourage you to share these out as much as you possibly can. Today, we're continuing our journey through the book of Matthew. And we are up to chapter 12. And we're going to be starting at verse 38 and going through to the end of chapter 12 today. This is where the religious leaders start to really test Jesus. He has really called them out in the previous verses and now they are really trying to come at him. And we start off in verse 38 where the Bible says this, Matthew writes, Then some of of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Very interesting based on what they just seen in the previous 38 verses of him healing somebody, casting out demons. And here they are saying, we want to see a sign. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Their desire to see a sign expressed another way in which they were hoping to be able to reject him. Because if Jesus then didn't prove it, provide a sign after they said it, then they'd be able to find some other way to speak against him and prove to themselves that he was who they thought he was, which was actually an emissary of Satan, which is what they previously called him. Matthew Poole said, Had not Christ shown them signs enough? What were all the miracles that he had wrought in their sight? They either speak this out of further idle curiosity or else they speak it in direct opposition. So Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Jesus condemned their seeking after a sign because they'd already seen countless signs which had happened right before their eyes. And it's very easy to overestimate the power of miraculous signs to change the hearts of somebody who doubts and somebody who's a skeptic. Because Jesus said, you've already had signs and you've already rejected them. Then he talks about the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus assured them of a sign, but the great sign that he would show them was the sign of a resurrected Jesus, which they would see in the future. He says Jonah was a prophet here. Jonah was a prophet in the sense beyond his teaching and preaching to Nineveh. His life was a prophecy about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish. Jonah was indeed a picture of the work of Jesus. Jonah gave his life to appease the wrath of God coming upon others. That's why he jumped out of the boat, was thrown out of the boat. But death didn't hold Jonah. After three days and nights of imprisonment, he's set set free and he's alive, which is a picture of Jesus and his glorious resurrection. Uh, David Guzik says this, If Jesus rose from the dead on the first day or on the fifth day, then we could say Jesus was a liar and a false prophet. But he said he would rise again on the third day. Jesus didn't get it wrong, and he never does. But we shouldn't miss the central point here. Um, 
William Barclay says, Jesus says you're asking for a sign. Jesus is saying, I am God's sign. You've failed to recognize me. The, the Ninevites recognized God's warning in Jonah. The Queen of Sheba recognized God's wisdom in Solomon. And this is what Jesus is about to go on and teach here. So let's go on to verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a, a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Simply put, greater light requires greater judgment. Nineveh, Nineveh and the Queen of the South repented even though they had a lesser light shining in their midst. The rejection of the greater light by the religious leaders was totally indefensible. Adam Clark described three ways or several ways that the witness of Jesus was greater than the witness of Jonah. He said this, Christ who preached to the Jews was infinitely greater than Jonah in his nature, person and mission. Jonah preached repentance in Nineveh for only 40 days. Christ preached among the Jews for several years. Jonah wrought no miracles to authorize his preaching, but Christ wrought miracles every day in every place where he went and of every kind. Notwithstanding all of this, the people of Judea did not repent, though the people of Nineveh did. This is the point Jesus is making. When you've had prophets that have done lesser things than I've done, you've accepted them. So why is it now that I'm doing greater things that now you still want another sign? Signs are never going to work for you. They didn't work with Jonah. Uh, if, 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 then, if you won't consider the lesser things that Jonah did and how that turned them to repentance, if what I've done, which was greater than what he did, is not going to turn you to repentance, then signs aren't going to work for you. We're... You have to be impressed that Jesus claims here because he says, A greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was the son of David. One of the great messianic titles of Jesus is the son of David. Jesus was a much greater son of David than the son of David, Solomon. That's, that, that's why we, we, we see Jesus standing in front of the religious leaders and his claim to be the greatest and greater than Israel's richest and wisest king was something that only Jesus could have the audacity to say, but it was totally justified. Verse 43. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. In context, Jesus' main point was not upon the principles of demonic possession. He explained the seriousness of rejecting him 
as completely as the religious leaders had when an unclean spirit goes out of a man. This rejection and opposition of Jesus was going to leave them worse off than ever before. And he says, this wicked generation, which is exemplified by you religious leaders, because you're rejecting me, they were going to find their last state worse than their first. Now, in large measure, they rejected Jesus because he wasn't messianic enough for their taste. And it, it, why? Because he wasn't a political messiah. He wasn't a military messiah come to restore Israel militarily or politically. And, and the Jewish people desired that kind of messiah. They, and they, that's what they wanted. But the use of this illustration shows us some very interesting principles of demon possession. Shows us that Jesus regarded it as something that's real. It's a real phenomenon. It's not just some kind of superstitious thing. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Demons, at least some of them, desire and need a human host and they look for a place among the empty, seeking and then seeking the empty and they see the empty as an invitation. Matthew Poole, the devil cannot be at rest where he hath no mischief to do to men. So then Jesus says, so the demon says, well, if I can't find anybody who's empty, I will return to my house. Spurgeon said this, the foul fiend calls the man my house. His audacity is amazing. He did not build or buy that house and he has no right to it. A demon can only inhabit someone if that person is empty. That is without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. If it's empty, then it doesn't matter to the demon whether it's swept and put in order. So if we are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, if we're born again by the Spirit of God, then we cannot be empty, which means we can't be inhabited by demons. Which is why we have to understand. As a Christ follower, you may, may be oppressed by demonic forces in your life, but you cannot be possessed. Okay, let's move on to verse 46. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, so who is my mother? Who's my brother? He stretched out his hand toward his disciples and he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Considering the general opposition to Jesus, it, it may well be that the family of Jesus wanted to appeal to him to maybe chill out a little bit. I don't know. Maybe they were like, listen, you've got to just calm it down a little bit. Spurgeon said this, the members of his family had come to take him because they thought him beside himself. No doubt the Pharisees had represented his ministry to his relatives that they thought that they should go and restrain him. So Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? So now we might have expected that if you're somebody, you know, member of Jesus' family, that you might get front row seats with a little reserve sign, uh, some kind of special privileges, but they didn't have any special privileges whatsoever. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had no special favor in this moment. And she stands out a wonderful example of somebody who's privileged by God 
stood by Jesus, but she's not higher than Jesus. She's, in fact, no higher than anybody else who does the will of my Father in heaven, is what Jesus says. Jesus very plainly had brothers. Who are my brothers? Uh, yes, I have human brothers out there, but these are my brothers as well. The brother, interestingly enough, the brothers of Jesus uh, were not seemingly supportive of his ministry until after his resurrection. In fact, James, who wrote the book of James, wasn't converted until after Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. Th these ones who do the will of God and stand in contrast to this evil and adulterous generation represented by the Pharisees. There, my mother and my brother and my sister. So we can see this, these words here at, at the conclusion of Matthew chapter 12. They're, they're basically a very gracious invitation by Jesus, even to the religious leaders who, who, whose hostility towards Jesus was deepening by the hour as they were plotting against him. But he gave them a gracious invitation. You can still come and be part of my family if you do the will of my father. Poole said this, the only thing to be further learned from this paragraph is how dear believers and holy persons are to Jesus. He counts them as dear as mother, brethren or sisters and thereby teaches us the esteem that we ought to have for such. Which leads me to my observation today. I feel very privileged to be considered one of Jesus' brothers. So do you? Do you, do you consider it a privilege to be a brother or a sister of Jesus Christ himself? Think about that right now. Look in the mirror. If you don't have a mirror, get your phone out and put it in selfie mode and turn the camera around, look at yourself and say, hey, wow, look at that. You're a, you're a brother and sister of Jesus Christ himself because you're doing the will of the Father. You're doing what Jesus asked you to do. Wow. That's it. I'm, I'm a part of the family of God, Jesus is my brother. Jesus calls you family. He didn't just die for you. He didn't just give you the ability to be able to do all the things that he said in his word that you could do. He says, no, you're part of my family. Part of the family of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing statement. And the fact that he said it to religious leaders who were plotting against him goes to show it doesn't matter who you are. Jesus loves you and has a massively huge desire for you to be a part of his family. He wants you to be his brother or sister. You can choose to be his enemy if you want to. His desire is to you, for you to be a part of the family. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege to be part of the family of God. Thank you that God, that being a part of the family of God means so many different things and allows us to understand that we're protected, we have a covering and that we have privileges that we don't deserve to sit alongside our Saviour as a brother. He is our brother, 
We are his brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day. Thank you.